So we're going to be in 1 Peter. We started a series last week um, in the book of 1 Peter. And I'm really glad I chose this book. I take, can't take credit. God just must have been talking to me um, because it's so applicable to our moment in history right now. And the turmoil and upset that's going on in our world. And Peter is, it's like he's speaking directly to that. Um, and I don't want to impose our culture on the text, but it's pretty remarkable, the timing of this. I just want to point that out because Peter is addressing the church in a time when the church has been spread out through various historical circumstances and there's persecution and upset in the world. And he's speaking to the church saying, this is how you act. In light of what Jesus has done, this is what you, how you treat each other, okay? And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. If you're wondering why it's not ending at the end of chapter 1, it's because the numbers in your Bible are not inspired, all right? They're not always where they should be because Peter didn't put the numbers in there. That was added later for our convenience, so I can say, go to this verse, and you can go to that verse, all right? So last week, um, Peter opens his letter to the exiled Christians by reminding them of who they are. You're a new people. This is a, a new thing. The church is something new. Before the church, there was Jew and Gentile, and now it's in Christ or not in Christ, Two distinctions that matter that actually exist from God's perspective. Okay, it is the only distinctions that God sees. You're either in Christ or you're not. Okay, Paul referred called that one new man. All right, God has made a new humanity out of Christ. So First Peter one eight through nine says this: Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so then he goes on in verse 13, which is in the, we read eight through nine last week, verse 13, he starts talking about this future hope being grounded in something in the past. Look at what he says, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is talking about when Jesus comes a second time. We spent 24 some odd weeks in the book of Revelation talking about that very thing. Okay, That's what he's referring to. So our text this morning begins with a very important connecting word, which is therefore. Those of you who are reading your Bibles, which is hopefully all of you, when you see the word therefore or because, that means you got to know what it said before that to know what this next part means. All right. If you, so he, what he's saying is if you are a new people, so everything we talked about last week, if that is true and you're shaped by Christ, who is our living hope, here is how you should live. In light of that amazing truth, here's how you should live. And he begins with this idea of um, set your mind, prepare your mind for action. Another way to put that would be gird up the loins of your mind. I don't know about you guys, but I don't walk around saying gird up your loins all the time. 
Okay, I don't, that's referring to, in this, in this day, in Peter's day, you wore, men wore these long robes. And if you wanted to do something athletic, you would pull it up and tie it so that your legs were free. Okay, so that's what gird up your loins means. So he says, gird up your loins, but not your literal loins, <laughs> the loins of your mind, meaning prepare yourself to move. Let's get to work. Think hard. Um, set your mind, right? Set, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing you should be thinking about that should be driving you is Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And I have to live like he is. Okay. So Peter is saying, roll up your sleeves, discipline your mind to focus on Christ and his coming. Let's get to work. That's what he's saying. And that is what I feel in my heart that God is saying to us as a church. This is not a time just to sort of go, well, we're quarantined and there's all this stuff going on. I just think I'll just stay in. I just go stay home. I'm so overwhelmed. And that is not what God is saying. That's what the enemy is saying. What God is saying is gird up the loins of your mind. Let's get to work. Roll up your sleeves. It's time. It's time for the church to be the church. This hope he's talking about is not the kind of hope that is wishful thinking, like saying, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope it's not a million degrees out in that field tomorrow, right? That's just wishful thinking. That is not what he's talking about. This is a hope that is eternally secure in the future based on a past event, and that past event is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our future coming hope the hope for tomorrow, the hope for the day after, the day after, and on into eternity is not just, well, I hope it happens like I hope it doesn't rain. It's a hope that is set and based on something that happened in the past, which is the resurrection of Jesus. We don't hope the way the world hopes. Karen Jobes, who wrote a great commentary on 1 Peter, she says, Peter orients his readers to a future grace that is fully present but not fully realized in their lives, a grace that is fully guaranteed by the past event of the redeeming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. She says it better than I could. All right, that's just verse 13. Now let's look at verses 14 through 21. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter now turns to how this new identity as the new people of God and the eternal hope we have been given should be reflected in how we live. He invokes this father-children metaphor. 
which I love because I'm a father. It's fun to me to think about my kids. And what are my kids? They're, I think Josh prayed it right there at the end that we would be the spitting image of the father. That is exactly his point. This imagery describes the kind of holiness that he's aiming for here. He's saying we are to be holy, set apart, like a daughter is the spitting image of her dad. The feet that he mentions in verse 17 is not paralyzed, or the fear, excuse me, that's a typo. This is not paralyzing dread. This is just no, the fear that comes from knowing that you will be accountable to your father. He's going to know what you're doing and how you're acting, and you're going to see him soon, right? I remember as a kid, sorry, Dad, this is what you get for being in your son's church. I remember as a kid, my dad would go to work like on a Friday or a Saturday, and he would leave us jobs to do, which usually involved cutting the grass or some other horrible chore. Digging holes and refilling holes, that's what it felt like. And so then he would leave, and we would stand around, me and my brothers, not doing what he told us to do for hours and hours and hours. With, but we always had this gnawing pit of fear in our gut that dad was going to come home. And when he came home and the jobs weren't done, terrible things were going to happen. We didn't know what those things were, but it was not going to be fun. And so it eventually would wake us up as the clock went, right? Oh, it's, dad's coming home at 5, and it's like 3.30. It's going to take us. And we would calculate carefully how long we thought each tour would take which would allow us to put it off for a certain amount of time. Some, most of the time we were wrong. And dad would come pulling in the driveway as we were still doing our jobs. We weren't afraid of our father with a paralyzing dread. We knew that he loved us and we loved him. But the accountability was part of what motivated us to act right, knowing that he was watching and paying attention. And those of you who didn't have dads that paid attention, you know the opposite. It's true. So this is the kind of holiness Peter is aiming at, is this kind of holiness that comes, this kind of fear that comes from an, a knowing you're accountable to your father. He is a good father. He's a loving father. He's a gracious father, but you are accountable to him for what you do. People in the ancient Near East, Jew and Gentile alike, placed a lot of their own value on their ancestral traditions. The land they inherited, the stories they inherited, Veneration of your forebears was enormously important. And Peter tells them here in these verses that all of that is futile. It's meaningless. It gets you nowhere with God. Because there's only two categories, in Christ or not in Christ. Not rich and in Christ and rich and not in Christ. It's just in Christ or not in Christ. Not only is it futile, but living in your pre-redemption identity, and this is what leads us to his final point. Living in your pre-redemption identity causes us to treat each other with contempt, malice, and competitiveness. Well, I come from good stock, or my ancestors go way back in Israel, and I have this land I inherited from my forefather and his forefather and his forefather, therefore I'm kind of a big deal. And then your neighbor's like, well, I inherited this from my forefather and my, his forefather, and he was really great at this, and he's famous for that. We have the same problem in 
2020. It's look where I come from. And Peter says, no, 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 no. When you live out of that pre-redemption identity, it creates really bad stuff. And the answer is to live, is become part of this new man, right, that Paul talks about, to get this whole new identity, to be born again, as Peter says. And where he got, he got that from Jesus. You must be born again, being recreated as a new person. And when you live out of that identity, that person, there's no greed, there's no malice, there's no competitiveness. Look at verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For, here's a quote from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So your relationship with God is not an individual, private matter. To be in a chosen people and set apart by God people means that you are chosen and set apart with other people. It's just not about you being set apart and redeemed. You are redeemed into a people that are also redeemed together. That's what the church is. It's just the collection of people who have been born again into a living hope. So it's not just about you and your redemption. It's about everyone else has been redeemed along with you as a people. We are set apart together. This holiness thing in Peter's mind is together, not individually. It's hard for us Americans to think very individually. And it's hard for us sometimes to think as a, in terms of a group identity as the church. Verse 22 is really interesting. I completely nerded out on it this week. I'm trying not to bore you. But it's challenging. Let me explain it. There are two participial phrases. Uh-oh. I used the English teacher word. Thank you, Susan. That's your new word. They're both modifying love one another earnestly from a pure, pure heart. You can see it here, the two phrases. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth is one. Modifying love one another and the other is since you have been born again, also modifying. You could say since is like saying because. It's the cause of how you treat each other. So both phrases show the cause of this unhypocritical or genuine, pure, pure-hearted love. So let me put it in a couple of phrases for you if you're confused. One, it says genuinely love each other because you have been set apart by God for that purpose at great cost. So why do we love each other? Because we've been set apart for it. And what was the cost of that was the life of Jesus. So we are set apart. It's not just because you feel guilty about not doing it or because the world tells you you should or because today you're just in an empathetic mood 
or because you're just an empathetic or compassionate person naturally. That is not why, because that is a fading reason to love one another. The reason we love one another is because Jesus died to set apart, to set you apart to do that. That's part of the, what he had in mind when he died for you. Secondly, genuinely love each other because you have been reborn with an eternal nature and perfect love is an essential element of that new nature. In other words, act like you're a Christian. You have a new nature in Christ and part of an essential element of that new nature in Christ, that imperishable, unstoppable, eternal nature that you possess right now as a Christian, part of that is loving unhypocritically each other. So you could say Christians love each other like this. It's just what we do. It's who we are. He quotes Isaiah, giving us a, a, a one final reason to love one another, which is this life is fleeting. The grass will wither and die. The flowers will wither and die and turn to dust and blow away in the breeze. And that is what life is like. But what's not going to blow away in the breeze is your eternal nature in Christ and your relationships with each other with those who are in Christ, the church. You're going to be with each other, and we're going to be with every church down the street forever. Forever. That's kind of a long time. Those connections and relationships are what matters, not this stuff, not your daily mess. All that's going to wither and fade and blow away. And so his instruction is, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are all sins that do what? They destroy relationships. Those are all relational sins. If we're set apart, consecrated to God, then we will relate to each other according to the character of God, which is not to do those things. So when malice comes up in your heart towards someone else, that's your old, old nature talking. And what Peter was saying to you this morning is, stop it. Act like a Christian. Act like you have a redeemed eternal nature. Don't live out of your pre-redemption identity. So here's the thing that strikes me as I read these verses. Is the only source or motivation the world can offer you to love one another is this vague, guilt-driven motivation that fades as quickly as your limited empathy fades. Right now, the world is just all spun up, full of empathy and compassion for one another, which is a good thing. But let me tell you, it's going to fade because we're human beings. When the tornado dies down, and the compassion begins to fade and life begins to go back to normal, so will all the desire for change. Because all the world can offer you is a temporal, finite motivation for doing what you're called to do. But Peter says you actually have something eternal driving you to love one another and to love one another really, sacrificially, and forever. And that is the character of Christ in you the Holy Spirit residing in your heart. You have a transformed heart. 
don't know if you know this, but it's worth saying if you already know it. Racism does not exist because of ignorance. Racism exists because we have malice and greed in our hearts. We have sinful hearts. Every human being is born with it. It exists because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's Jeremiah. So listen, no amount of educating others will eradicate the human drive towards malice, greed, pride, and selfishness. All the world can do right now is just point at racism and say, look, racism. Everybody stands around and goes, yeah, you're right. And some people are like, I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Other people are going, yeah, it's terrible. But all they can do is just point at it and freak out about it, but they can't fix it. Because it's an issue of sin in the human heart that can only be fixed by Jesus coming and transforming your heart. We need a new nature. I'm personally tired of just pointing at sin and calling it bad and doing nothing about it. God didn't even try to fix the old sinful nature. You ever notice that? He didn't go, okay, look. We're just going to try really hard for a while. Jesus came and he transformed our old nature into a new nature. He just made you all over again. He didn't say we just got some tweaking to do. You need to change your behavior here and there, but by and large, you're doing great. He said, I'm going to send Jesus. He's going to die for you and give you his nature. His imperishable seed, as Peter calls it. This is what we need. This is what the world needs. It's what I need. It's what you need. We need a new nature and then to live out of that. This is why God didn't even try to fix us. He sent Jesus to make a whole new humanity with a new nature. And Peter is simply asking us to act like it. I love that Peter's not pulling this out of a vacuum. This, this is what Jesus taught. Peter's just saying, hey, I've got to preach this sermon. I've got to write this letter to these people. What should I say? What did Jesus say a while ago? Oh, yeah. You must be born again. Love one another as I have loved you. And he's just saying this all over again. What did Jesus teach? Well, how did Jesus sum up the entire faith? Two commandments, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, come on, man. Can't be that simple. I mean, it's so simple. It looks like a Facebook meme, doesn't it? It probably is one. Then Jesus is asked, I think, a very good question. Who is my neighbor? This is where it gets dicey, doesn't it? It's a simple statement, but it's as deep as the ocean. Who is my neighbor? His answer was the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he defined neighbor as the person in front of you. <laughs> Just the person in front of you, regardless of how far-reaching culturally you must go to reach them. In his story, Jesus placed two people on opposite ends of the cultural spectrum of that day. And he said, it's just the dude in front of you who needs your help. That's your neighbor. 
These are our marching orders. This is what I'm coming back to over and over again as I stand in the whirlwind in our culture. And Peter would say to us the same thing he said to these Christians, I think, which is to say, just do what Jesus said. Start with each other. And each other doesn't just mean the people sitting in this field and the people online. It's the church down the street and the church down the street from them and the church down the street from them. And what we do is begin to model what Jesus told us to do, which is to love each other, no matter how far-reaching culturally we have to reach in order to do it. The only div division that is relevant is in Christ or not in Christ. Peter would say, make the church the shining example of what love looks like, what unity looks like. You know, the the vision for the church is impossible without Christ. It is maximum diversity with maximum unity. And that is something the world cannot achieve. You have one or the other. You have a lot of diversity and no unity. So you lower the, the, the truth standard, the belief standard, down to the lowest common denominator so that you can have diversity. Or you have no diversity with a high standard of truth and opinion and belief. And only in the church can we have both because we don't rally around our own opinions and our own beliefs. We rally around Christ. That we have a new nature, you have a new nature, so we're brothers and sisters, we're in the same family and we will be forever. And on the basis of that, we relate to each other. And so what we need to do is just show people what love looks like. It's the heart behind the food ministry we're doing. Heather mentioned it during the announcements. We're doing that every other week, every other Sunday. Just going to people saying, hey, we love you. Here's some food. Can we chat? Can we pray for you? This afternoon, there's a, I don't think this is in the announcements. There's a prayer meeting at the, Main Street Methodist Church, a community prayer meeting. I'm going to that. It's at four o'clock. You should go. It's in the garden, the community garden over there. Our elder team's going to go. This is what we're called to do. I can't fix the world. You're not going to fix the world on Facebook. It only took two posts, and that was soft. Racism soft. Two Facebook posts, and I'm done. No. We go love our brothers and sisters. We love them like Peter calls us to love them, which is the way Jesus called us to love them. Unhypocritically, without malice, competitiveness, greed. This is what we're called to do. So I want to pray for us. I think um, like Jesus in his statement, it's very simple, but it's very deep. And it's very hard. Because in that Good Samaritan story, the people who were supposed to serve and help that man on the side of the road passed him by. They were too busy doing their religious duties. My primary fear is that the church, starting with Living Hope Church, will do the same. We will just go along, continue to do our religious duties and ignore the person lying on the side of the road. And so I'm, my heart is to begin to turn our face outward. It's no coincidence we're all sitting outside. Not all of us. Some of you can't be. That's fine. 
So I want to pray for us that God would turn our hearts outward, that our bodies just wouldn't be outside, but that our hearts would be turned out and we would all begin to ask God for ourselves, who is the man on the side of the road in front of me that God has called me to serve? Who is the woman on the side of the road in front of me that God has called me to serve? And how can I love? And if listen, if you're not loving each other well, this is maybe I shouldn't be a side note. If you're not loving each other in this church well, you need to start doing that. That's where you start. So why don't we pray together and ask God to help us? These are important things. So God, we just ask you now to, to show us, each one of us, each one of us has a different sphere of influence and connection in the world. God, help us to be people that love well, that love sincerely. God, if there's any malice or deceit or competitiveness or wickedness in our hearts towards anyone else, God, I pray that you would convict us now of that sin and root it out of us. God, help us to have eyes to see the need right in front of us, wherever that is. God, help us to see the world in categories that you see it in. God, help us to see the world in as those who are in Christ and are our brothers and sisters and those who are not in Christ that we want to be our brothers and sisters. God, you have given the church the tools to rescue the world from sin. You have given us the gospel. God, help us to live that gospel out in the world, to represent it well and to preach it well to our neighbors, whether they be next door to us in our neighborhoods or lying in the street in front of us, that we would love our neighbor. God, I pray that the world would see the love and the unity and the diversity that we have, not just living hope inside Living Hope Church, but in the church in our city and in our area, that they would see people loving each other well and see the light and the life of Christ in us so clearly that it would draw people into your kingdom so that they too could be transformed by that light. So God, I guess we're just asking for revival. So Holy Spirit, we invite you in. <clears throat> we invite you in to our church. We invite you into our community and our city. We ask you to come and just walk the streets and draw people in to your kingdom. God, that the world will be transformed one person at a time, one new nature at a time. Out of the malice and the wickedness we see in our world will be eradicated by you. And make us agents of that as a church and as each one of us goes into our jobs and into our life. Help us to be that voice, Lord Jesus. We ask this in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen.